Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. This is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. Good morning. My name's Bron Burton. And good morning. My name's Dr Beach. How are you, Dr Beach? I'm very well. You got me in a bit of a panic then. You have said like, two minutes past time. What? <laughs> it's a bit late. <laughs> What's happening? <laughs> I have to confess, I'm, uh, I'm I'm nursing a very mild hangover, which is oh, know, nice to hear. Ten years, I reckon, since I've had Excellent. the last one. This life in the old girl yet, Doctor Beach. I got to confess, I don't have a hangover this morning for once. <laughs> <laughs> We've done a trading places. We've, swap. Yeah, we've done trading places. Yes. Yeah. What happened? Where'd you go? Oh, I, I drank some gin, and I'll explain that in a minute. But before we get into that, let's thank Tim Thorpe. Let's let's thank Tim. Thought from that. Well, the, personally, I'd like to thank you from the depths of my oh so shallow heart for keeping us entertained Friday afternoon in the cave. Yesterday morning, so three hours of the cave Friday afternoon, three hours yesterday morning, and three hours this morning. Nine hours of radio, public radio. Extraordinary. Tim Thorpe, extraordinary. No wonder he's got a gong. No wonder he's royalty. <laughs> thank you, Tim. Very much. And it's celebrating Neil Young's birthday. Yes, that was lovely. All sorts of things. Um, thank you very much, Andrew, for Soulful Bits, Sister Rosetta Tharp this morning. That was lovely to be uh, driving in and listening to some Sister Rosetta. Uh, and Edith, of course, for things to do today. You can catch Tim next weekend for more Vital Bits and Andrew for more Soulful Bits on Sunday. Indeed. Uh, back to Jean and yesterday, what happened? And then we'll go through the program. Uh, I, I went to, it was partly for um, Dr Alicia Belgrove, who's been on this program many times. Um, so it was her birthday, so it was partly for that. But also she's been involved in a collab with, um, Little Lon Distilling Company and they've created a gin together um, made out of uh, water taken from the Yarra and blended with botanicals that include three different types of algae. Uh, nice. Yes, I can see you getting very excited about this one, Dr. Beach. Yes. So um, very, it was just a very little tasting of that one. But, um, yeah, a bit of a celebration for Alicia's birthday. Cool. But, yeah, incredible, extraordinary. How Never, it taste? Yeah, fascinating. So was there a red, was a red, a brown and a green in there? Uh, there was definitely well, – one of them was Hormozyra. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a brown. Which is a brown. And I think – I only got to see flushes of the algae that we used. So Hormozyra is mermaid's necklace. Yes, there's little pearls on the intertidal. Yeah, if you go down to the pearls, beach. Endemic to southern Australia. When you're a kid, you probably pop them. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, there we go. That's what that was all about. But uh, hoping to line up a chat with both um, Alicia and also uh, some of the people from Little Lon about how this collaboration came about, the fact that they're actually using uh, the, the aromas created by um, breaking or really sort of um, concentrating down algae to blend with gin and create. It was amazing. Didn't it didn't taste anything like I was expecting. We'd better get on to that. Otherwise, Cam will hear about this and he'll have her on. No. <laughs> I think he probably just did. He probably just did. <laughs> no. Showers. Anyway, there you go. Um, on to the program. Um, very shortly in studio, we'll have baykeeper Neil Blake. He's going to be reporting on, um, oh, look, it was his actually his alter ego, Captain Trash, who went down to Ricketts Point yesterday for the 20th anniversary celebrations of Marine National Parks and Sanctuaries. What a wonderful thing it is that we had that there at Ricketts Point. So, uh, yeah, he'll be talking about that. And also a new community group that's bringing together, um, well, I'm, I've called it bringing the Maribyrnong to the Yarra and ultimately to Port Phillip Bay, but it's a, a new community group which is being formed from the Yarra River Keepers Association. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll hear more about that shortly. 
Then very exciting, Dr Beach, in studio. We mentioned this a few weeks ago that the uh, CSIRO uh, research vessel, the investigator, was heading off into the Indian Ocean to do some mapping from the deep waters around Cocos Keeling Islands and they have returned. So their voyage leader, uh, Dr Tim O'Hara from Museums Victoria, is going to be coming in and telling us about what they found. Very kindly coming in to share the... um Share the stuff with us, the observations, those beautiful, uh, well, yeah, lots of amazing discoveries of the depths. Yeah. In Cocos Keeling Island. Geographic and also biological. Yes. So really looking forward to that. Uh, and then if that wasn't enough, Dave Donnelly is going to be joining us. Uh, if you listen to this program regularly, you will know Dave from both Killer Whales Australia and also Dolphin Research Institute. So he is speaking to us about, he'll give us a quick report on what's happening with the whale migrations down the east coast, but also he's introducing us to uh, a PhD candidate, Isabella Reeves, who is at Flinders University in Adelaide, so we'll cross to Adelaide for this one. She's doing some really interesting work um, in genomics, looking at the potential connection between the old orca, old Tom. Are you familiar with old Tom? Uh, no. So uh, if you ever go to the Killer Whale Museum in Eden, you'll see there's a, a massive skeleton, which is old Tom, old Tom's remains, looking at potential DNA connections between old Tom, because uh, there's a story behind old Tom, which we'll talk about later on, and and current orcas swimming around today. Wonderful. Isn't that amazing? Oh. Hey, I neglected to also give a plug to some of the science that you're going to be talking about. Do you want to save that for a bit later on or do you want to... Uh, yeah, it's just a quick news. I'm going to just a bit... Well, yeah, it's World Cup season. What do we think of in the uh, marine invertebrates? Octopuses. Paul the octopus in 2010. Kid, the, the, the kids might not remember Paul the octopus about <laughs> 12 years ago, uh, but accurately predicted um, a couple of World Cup matches. So we think about octopuses, but there's been a really amusing paper just appeared in Nature, not about octopuses predicting World Cup or any other sporting events, but um, octopuses chucking stuff at one another. We'll talk about that in about 20 minutes. Cool. Yeah. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Good morning, Neil Blake. Good morning. How are you? Brian? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good, yeah. I've had a little look at the creek today and uh, yeah, all's well out there. The water's flowing fast. We're talking about Mary Creek? The Mary Creek, yep. Yep, very good. Lots of life happening in the creek. Now, um, yeah, we have, uh, for people who maybe haven't caught you on the program before, who might be just, you know, doing a bit of, being a bit of channel surfing, uh, you bring us a segment um, every sort of few weeks, about once a month, called Baykeeping, which is really just taking a look at um, Port Phillip Bay, the health of the bay, lots of community work going on around the bay. Um, but every now and then we sort of venture into, into the catchment, don't we? Yeah, well, uh, I mean, you know, people find it a bit hard to believe, Bron, but I have the view that the uh, that the rivers and the creeks are just the skinny bits of the bay. <laughs> you know. Particularly at that lower end where they're really they're estuarine, <laughs> aren't they? Well, yeah, that's, uh, well, it's almost really you can call that the bay. Yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> um, so we're going to talk a little bit about that. I'm wondering uh, what would you like to talk about first because your alter ego, Captain Trash, was down at Ricketts Point yesterday. Yeah, well, he had a good time down there. It was a pretty chilled sort of a event, you know, from from his point of view, because he was actually down there looking for the rap scallion that had uh, ripped off his rubies and kept on throwing <laughs> microplastics around everywhere, uh, but uh, and got the kids involved in having a bit of a search and. Um, it, it weren't too many microplastics there, to be honest. Well, that's good news. That is good news. Yeah, and really, that's come, the best news, though, was that there was a, a young woman, or, 
or a girl, I suppose. She's just about at that transitional stage uh, who uh, has really focused on uh, cleaning up microplastics. And it was fantastic to hear, uh, you know, a 12-year-old person saying that uh, they're really passionate about addressing that issue when we've got still people within uh, agencies saying that microplastics are just an emerging issue, which is code for we don't worry about them yet. So tell us about uh, this girl. She sounds amazing. We'll have yeah. to get, if she would like to, it would be gr- amazing to speak with her. Is she part of the Friends of Ricketts Point? She is indeed, yes. Well, the the, the uh, Beach Patrol group there, but uh, she is the daughter of uh, one of the protégés of Bob Whiteway. Who, ah. uh, Bob Whiteway, of course, was the the main driver who actually um, managed to secure Ricketts Point as a, as a marine sanctuary. And uh, he was a teacher, though, at, at Beaumaris High School, and uh, a number of his students are still involved today, to this day, who uh, got connected to that place by, by Bob's passion, through his passion and through their school activities there. And uh, this particular girl is the daughter of one of those people, you know, so it's a succession planning. Yeah, that's fantastic. Can you remind us, Neil, when was the, the sanctuary set up at, at Ricketts Point? 20 well, it was 20, 20, it years, 20 years ago, ago. Yeah. yeah. I think in a couple of days' time, actually, to the, to the very date, but, yes, yeah, so it's that long. We've been talking about the fact that we have it is 20 years since the establishment of marine national parks and sanctuaries in Victoria and sort of throughout the year a bit of a, a, a year-long celebration in different parts. So, yeah, that's, that's great. So how did yesterday go? Well, it was really good. I mean, uh, it was quite a lot packed into the, the overall proceedings, which began at 9.30 in the morning and uh, went through till around about 2 o'clock or so. But... Uh, the first part, though, was just people from giving some background to the, to the actual through speeches. Uh, and um, then there were some activities like rock pool rambles and things like that. Uh, there would have been a couple of hundred people, I think, attending. But the overall impression is uh, they were based at the um, Beaumaris Lifesaving Club, which were generously provided their venue for the day. Uh, and, yeah, just the terrific community community uh, Togetherness, though, um, really passionate people still keeping the, the flag flying for the sanctuary and uh, uh, really moving it stronger into the future. And again, succession planning is a key, and having those young people there who are showing the same passion, you know, they, they'll be the leaders of tomorrow. And uh, Ben Francis Shelley was down there as well. He was, I yeah, believe. Ben yep. was there, fantastic. Actually, I know he was because we had him in a few, couple of weeks That's ago. That's right. Yes, talking <laughs> about his um, his talk and uh, no doubt that was well received. Yeah. Uh, well, I didn't actually get to see Ben, but, you know, no doubt. I mean, <laughs> ben is a star, let's face it. You were, you were busy keeping an eye on Captain Trash. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, fantastic. Oh, that's great stuff. Um, all right. Uh, now, you've also brought in some information just while we're still talking about Bob Whiteway about a book which is about to be launched. So what's this one all about? This is very exciting. Yeah, well, Bob, as it turned out, you know, over his 20 years, I guess, of campaigning to get to, to get the uh, sanctuary, uh, he wrote a book. Uh, and, you know, so there was a lot of uh, hard grind there and he was probably on his own for much of that time uh, and gradually managed to get a few supporters. But uh, um, it's uh, his daughter, uh, Jane, has actually edited the book and she said that uh, in it um, it's an account of, you know, what, all of the grind that went into actually achieving the final declaration of the sanctuary. And... Um, 
it, it was written that they're using fictitious names, but when she read it, it was quite clear who Bob Whiteway was. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not a work of fiction, and uh, she's put changed the name to Bob Whiteway. So, uh, and that's to be released. Uh, well, the the print will be complete within a week or so, and so they're taking orders now for people who are interested in hearing that story. So, what is the book called? It's called Teacher Down Under, uh, and. Uh, Written by Bob, of course, uh, and a book on how one man's love for a world down under led to the establishment of Ricketts Point Marine Section. Ah, so it's a documentary piece. Yeah, yeah. So, so why did he? Why do you think he changed the names? Well, I guess you know there, uh, there's always a bit of local politics. That, okay. Yeah, uh, maybe things were changing. I suppose in the education department, you know, when. One of the big shifts that he brought about was that uh, he wanted to actually get kids down there in the water, you know, even if they were taking a bit of a risk, uh, rather than sitting in rows in a classroom. And that, that was his idea of learning experience. And, uh, you know, and after they'd finished, then people could go home from the beach. They didn't have to go back to school. So there was a whole <laughs> uh, freer approach that he wanted to adopt, and he managed to do that. Yeah. And uh, as I mentioned, a couple of his former students were there today. Oh, yesterday to attest to the, the, the value of that. Fantastic. So it's called Teacher Down Under by Bob Whiteway, OAM, yeah. and uh, orders being taken now. We'll put a link to that on our Facebook page, Neil. Yeah, okay. So uh, listeners can order a copy. Yes, because there is a, an, an email address there to, to contact yeah. uh, to get oh, that book. Uh, it was interesting to hear you say, Neil, that um, spearheaded by an enthusiastic 12-year-old girl <laughs> yesterday. It's great, but, but fewer microplastics? than you've seen in the past, so... Well, yeah, I mean... Uh, People are cleaning them up or they're not accumulating. I think, think, you know, to be, that really is testimony to the, the Ricketts Point Beach Patrol group, yep. you know, <laughs> that, and they're not just picking up the bigger things. Uh, yeah, there are people who are passionate about the microplastics too. You know, so. Yeah. Yeah, brilliant. All right, so uh, we will put a link to that on our Facebook page. I shall be ordering a copy myself. Um, now, while we've got you here, we've got you have an announcement about the formation of a new community group, which is very exciting to hear about. Yeah, that's the uh, Maribyrnong River and Waterways Association, which uh, it's been in the, the pipeline for a little while. I suppose pipeline's a bad word to use when we're talking about such things as waterways. But, uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but um, it, yeah, it, there was a, a couple of workshops that have been held there. There are a number of very active community groups in the you know the Jackson's Creek catchment, which is the upper part of the uh, the Maribyrnong and. Um, uh, Yarra River Keeper Association managed to get um, some funding to have uh, an officer go into the and work with those people to help to do, get uh, a bit more of a, a united voice for the for the Maribyrnong. and uh, that um, concluded with well it hasn't concluded it will be always be an ongoing um, process but uh, uh, a workshop over in. Um, by the Maribyrnong uh, in October, just a couple of days before the big flood. <laughs> oh. So we were pretty lucky really to get it all done. But uh, that um, in, involved probably around about 50 or so uh, members from the community come together to uh, workshop what such an organisation might do. And give it, so that gives uh, Nikki Kowalczyk, who's the uh, Yarra Riverkeeper officer, who's taken on the Maribyrnong role, uh, a, a real good solid basis to proceed, uh, rather than just sort of picking and choosing what she might be passionate about. Or you know, so there's there's a really good consensus of uh, community opinion that had been sought. 
so that um, there'll be a strong voice for the Maribyrnong and, the, and its tributaries. Fantastic. And, and, and those activities that they're thinking about doing and the things that are proposed, um, not only going to be cleaning up mess, but will also be sort of reclamation, revegetation. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's policy areas too that need to be looked at. Yeah. Know, so uh, one of the questions is the flood modelling, for example, you know, how, how up-to-date is that? Yep. Uh, <laughs> so it'll just be uh, essentially building relationships though, between uh, different sectors and rather than sort of outrageous campaigning, you know, so, but just really having good solid conversations with community and, and government agencies about what should the future look like. And planning controls, those kind of things, are obviously something that need to be addressed in urban areas uh, as we've got urban consolidation, you know, so you don't want sort of buildings built right over creeks and waterways. Uh, the, the natural... The, those waterways need to be given a chance to be as and do what waterways do naturally and the... Provide habitat and also solace for people. Yeah, that's right. And I'm thinking, let them do what they do naturally instead of building walls around racecourses. Well, you may you may well say that. But think of the poor horses, though, Peter. Come on. So, uh, Neil, is this a complete? If we kind of think about all of the different major tributaries heading out into Port Phillip Bay, particularly at the northern end, does this complete the set? Because we have a we have a Werribee River Keeper and Yarra River Keeper, and now we have a Maribyrnong. Yeah. Is, does this kind of complete the puzzle? Well, not puzzle, but, you know, in terms of communica- community advocacy, does this sort of complete the set? Oh, uh, well, you know, there's, you know, the Cororoit Creek, that they perhaps don't have quite the same profile as uh, the other groups, and I guess uh, one thing that distinguishes the Werribee River Keeper and, and the Yarra River Keeper is that they have actually got resources to have a couple of paid staff, you know, and, and that's sort of what elevates those organisations, for, for want of a better word, uh, against organisations that are just purely voluntary. Mm. Uh, so they've got a bit more consistent sort of, uh, you know, endeavour. Um, and I don't know whether it possibly even gives them a little bit more credibility for some reason with government agencies. Uh, maybe people too can take more of a risk or something. Over that. Well, and they've also got a responsibility to be, uh, to, to, make, to be a voice for their community too. So. Fascinating to see what comes from this. And it'd be really great to have Nikki in at some point in the future to talk about her plans for the... Um, now, it's not, she's not the Maribyrnong River Keeper as such, but it's a... Uh, what's the association called? It's interesting. It's called the Maribyrnong River and Waterways Association. Uh, there was a lot of debate about what it should be called. and uh, uh, But, yeah, one of the apparently things that came up was that the, the name River Keeper is something that some people in the Indigenous community... It doesn't resonate well with them, you know, so I'm not sure exactly what the issue is, but I've got some... I could guess what it may be, but, you know, so they wanted something that actually works for all sectors of the community and particularly Indigenous community too. Neil, absolutely wonderful, as always, to have you in. Um, Quick plug for anything coming up in the next few weeks. (laughs) I think we've got you in one more time before the end of the year. 
Yeah, well, we don't uh, have anything immediately in, on hand at the moment, Bron. Um, there, there are things happening, but yeah, I haven't got the details with me just at the moment. All right, that's great. So if people oh, want to check out the Echo Centre web page, then they'll find out what's going on there. We've put a link to that on our Facebook page. As always, if you go to uh, the, the promotional stuff about today's program, um, click on the photo of your uh, resplendent alter ego, Captain Trash, and that will okay. take you through to a link to the uh, Port Phillip Eco Centre. Uh, that'll make Captain Trash very happy. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Neil. <laughs> oh, he's popped in. <laughs> Thanks, Neil. We'll catch you soon. Thank you. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. It's through Triple R, it's right it's, Marinara. It's, it's, it's a quick life of beach, Bron. Great. Uh, it's World Cup time. Many of us will remember Paul the Octopus back in 2010, correctly predicting a couple of matches. Um, he was a German octopus housed in Germany. Um, but and, the, and the mode of prediction was that he went to, I can't remember, I remember the octopus being in the tank and there being two different coloured balls and he had to choose which one and that indicated the winner. It was something like something that like or that. sat on top of... The goal uh, square or... Yeah, goal squares which were labelled with either Germany or Poland flags and yep. essentially he got the toss of the coin right <laughs> ten times in a row. That freaked everyone out. Uh, not talking about octopus okay. gambling or World Cup, but we are talking about octopuses and these are octopuses in the wild off Jarvis Bay. Uh, gloomy octopus. Um, researchers from Sydney and also from Alaska, there's been all sorts of people involved in this, um, decided to chuck a camera down there and observe the octopuses because most octopuses are solitary animals and these octopuses live in kind of dense areas with lots of shellfish down there, so there's, a few, you know, there's an octopus every metre or so. For the first time, there has been, there is now video evidence of octopuses chucking stuff at each other. Oh, <laughs> really? <laughs> it's hilarious. You can go on to nature. Um, in a sign of aggression? In a sign of aggression. Right. Well, yeah, or high density living. Yeah, it all gets a bit tense sometimes. Yeah, okay. Your neighbours are a little bit close. Bit of competition um, so, for yeah, resources. Yeah, so if someone gets a little bit close, they're picking up shells and chucking them at them. They're chucking, getting rid of stuff the whole time, chucking stuff away, but. There are distinct clues that this is directed at that neighbourhood octopus, whether it be Paul, whether it be Bruce, whether it be, you know, Jean or whoever, um, because they have a consistent dark colour, which indicates a little bit of aggression, a little bit hyped, and like, okay, I'm going to get you this time. So chuck bits of seaweed, old shells, um, silt sometimes. Um, in fact, more often silt at other octopuses because they think that sort of clouds the, the environment rather than wasting ink or whatever. Um, and they're probably not going to hurt them. I just want to scare them. Yeah. <laughs> but, but hilarious. You can, if you just go nature in your favourite search engine, nature octopuses, um, this will come up. And there's a couple of really great videos there. I can show you one now. Brian, you can have a look at it. Oh, this is brilliant. Okay. Yes, of course. And we'll, we'll, we'll put a link, we'll put up a on, link our, on our Facebook, Facebook page so yeah. you can see it. So it's, called, it's called Duck Octopuses Caught on Camera Throwing Things <laughs> at Each Other. And, that, and the paper that was published... Um, which appeared in PLOS One from um, Peter Godfrey Smith and three, four other authors is called In the Line of Fire, Debris Throwing by Wild Octopuses. And you can you can read that whole paper. There's a link in the Nature one, but you can read that whole paper free because it's in um, the, like, the journal PLOS One. And you don't need a science degree to read it? Is it the sort of thing anyone can read? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's a good fun read. Um, and it's, um, yeah, really nice. It, it, it's written very well. It's, I mean, 
a lot of papers are written very well, of yes. course, but particularly ones which are going to be attractive for general consumption. I love it. Yeah. Which universities it come from? Um, Sydney University was first. Well, it's Sydney Uni and also Alaska. Yeah. Um, all sorts of people. So the lead author is from um, University of Sydney from the Department of History of Philosophy of Science, weirdly. Ah. And then we have um, Matthew Lawrence, who is also from New South Wales. I doesn't say where he's from, but yeah. And yeah, cool. Second author, David Shield, uh, Alaska Pacific University um, in Anchorage. Let's get one of the lead authors on, I think. We should do that. This is fun. <laughs> we I mean, probably could. We could try and contact Peter Godfrey Smith. Let's, let's try and do that. So if you're listening, Peter Godfrey Smith up in Sydney. Um, <laughs> you never know. We'll have you on in a couple of weeks. <laughs> Brilliant. Please. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Now, 10 days ago, the CSIRO's research vessel, the RV Investigator, arrived back at Western Australia's Henderson Port from an epic 11,000-kilometre trip during which, which scientists on board mapped the seafloor of the deep Indian Ocean around the Cocos Keeling Islands for the very first time. Over 35 days, a team of scientists from Museums Victoria surveyed previously unknown deep-sea life using underwater video and collecting samples to reveal an environment that until now has been completely hidden from the rest of the world. So what did they find? To answer this question, it's with great pleasure we welcome back to Marinara and to Triple R, the uh, investigators, Voyage Chief Scientist, Dr. Tim O'Hara. Good morning, Tim. Welcome back. Good morning. Yes, it's great to be back, actually. Yes. So many wow <laughs> factors to this story, and uh, I don't know where to start, but let's go with a basic. How was it? Um, look, it was fantastic. You know, it's always hard work because you're working, you know, long hours and, you know, there's always a lot to do. But, you know, every day we would have um, terrific samples coming up and terrific video and, uh, you know, the sun would shine and there's great sunsets. And, and so you really feel buoyed the whole time and you're discovering new things, you know. You're going to places where people have never been before and so it's, it's a really privileged moment as well. What do we know about the Cocos Keeling Islands Marine Park previously before this trip? Well, we knew a lot about around the islands themselves. There's been quite a lot of um, studies in the lagoon and around the coral reefs and things and turtles and birds and things. But but as for the deep sea, nothing. You know, no one had been there before. Um, you know, it's a long way from Australia. We didn't have an ocean-going ship for a long time. And so, uh, you know, it, it was really sort of an empty space on maps of world biodiversity. So it was great to go there and fill that in. The um, the creation of the investigator has been a real game changer as far as this sort of research goes, hasn't it? It has actually. So it's gotten a lot bigger capacity than than previous boats. So so now we can survey right down to you know five and a half six kilometres deep, whereas previous ships were in limits of the half of that. So and the seafloor in that area is really deep, you know, because it's about to get pushed into the the Java Trench near Indonesia. So it's sort of yeah, it's it's down often below six thousand metres, six kilometres deep. You know, it's really deep. You know, divers think fifty metres is deep, and look a sub. Marina probably thinks 500 metres is deep. And, and here we are surveying down to 6,000 metres. So it's it's really extraordinary. Uh, Tim, it's Dr Beach here. Fantastic um, to, to hear that you're able to, to get out there into, into that, that, that deep area. What are some of the amazing things that you may have found down there? 
Well, all sorts of things. Lots of new species. I mean, it's a really, it's a distant part of Australia. It's halfway between Australia and Sri Lanka. So it's, it's sort of really right out in the Indian Ocean. Um, and so the animals are different um, and definitely some endemic species from the islands, some, even some fish. You know, we were finding fish species that uh, our specialists on board have uh, never seen before. So, so that's really exciting. And lots of other things like crabs and black holes and, and uh, echinoderms and things. So, yeah, that's really exciting as well. But, you know, it's it just quirky things. Like in one sample, we brought up 700 uh, fossil shark's teeth, you know, from, from sort of the, uh, the ancestors of the great, great white sharks from several million years ago. So, yeah, really extraordinary stuff. It was sort of half covered in sort of a manganese crust, just lying on the seafloor, like some sort of great shark graveyard. <laughs> I don't know why there were so many in the one spot, but it's just extraordinary. I'm guessing if Ben Francis Shelley is listening right now, he's probably salivating. <laughs> yeah. he might, he's probably going to want to get in touch with you about those shark teeth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, sharks drop teeth all the time, so it's not like it's a graveyard necessarily, you know. Um, so as, as they sort of get worn out, um, the, the teeth drop out. So, but yeah, just to find so many in the one spot, it's just, uh, yeah, it's amazing. I want to ask you about the mapping, the uh, underwater geography, because some of the descriptions I've read about the what you've actually found are incredible, these massive flat-topped ancient sea mountains. Can you tell us a bit about some of the geography that you've found through this trip? Uh, Anything unexpected as well? Sure. Um, So the whole area is dotted with these enormous mountains. I mean, if they were on on land, they would easily be Australia's largest mountains. So we're talking um, seamounts that are sort of four to five kilometres high, whereas Mount Kosciuszko is just over 2,000 metres. So... Um, yeah, so just really extraordinary. And some of it's 70 kilometres across, so it's kind of like the size of half of Melbourne. Um, just amazing size and structure. And they've been there for a long time. So some of them, <coughs> excuse me, um, have been there around since 120 million years ago and, and the latest from 40 million years ago. So, um, and what that lava that's good, that they were created with is very dense, very dense basalt. And so what happens over time is they sink. Can you imagine that? Seamounts sink into the soft oceanic crust. <clears throat> and um, so so things that were volcanoes at once at the surface actually slowly over time sink down to uh, one, 2,000 metres. And so now these flat-topped, you know, seamounts with, with fossils on the top of, you know, dinosaur-era shallow water reef specimens and stuff um, are now, yeah, way deep and, and support a completely different fauna. So they're fascinating. But over time, earthquakes have happened and huge uh, sort of like almost look like rivers along the side of the, the seamounts have formed from all the, the, the sand and the mud that have been sloughed off into the, into the deep sea. Um, yeah, they're just amazing structures with ridges and valleys and plateaus. And, and, and the great thing about the investigators is it's a superb mapping ability so they have these um, multi-beam sonars that can bounce sound down to the bottom and get a really high-resolution map. So uh, we did that for the first time. Um, maps in the Murfield and even around Cocos Keeling Islands, the deep sea around Cocos Keeling Islands, a seamount which supports those islands had never been properly mapped before. Absolutely amazing. If, you're, um, if you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Dr Tim O'Hara from Museums Victoria, who is the um, lead chief scientist on the investigator heading to the Cocos Keeling Islands. For listeners who aren't quite familiar with the geography, where are the Cocos Islands or Cocos Keeling Islands? So 
So they're next to Christmas Island, and yeah, as, as I was saying before, they're halfway between Australia and Sri Lanka. So they're sort of south of Sumatra, actually. Um, so it's a long way. It took us six days by boat to get there from Darwin and, and almost seven days to get from there back to Perth afterwards. And, so it's uh, a really remote area. People don't know. They just fly there and it just takes several hours and you just land. But, in fact, they're really isolated. Uh, yeah, yeah, I was just thinking that as you were describing that very evocatively, Tim, um, how remote that is, but also such beautiful descriptions of that geography down there. It must have been exciting, so thrilling for you all on board the investigators to see these data coming up in real time. Sure, and, and it's really strange because, you know, if you go on deck, all you see is flat ocean. You don't see all the, the majesty yeah. and the, the drama of the, the landscape. <clears throat> um, Tim, we're going to put a, we've already put a link to this on our Facebook page. If you go and have a look and just click on the photo of the investigator, it'll take you through to a link which you can then follow from that to museums um, and see some of some photos of some of the animals. Um, it's always a bit sad, I think, when we collect samples, but otherwise yeah. we've got no, yeah. no way of actually seeing what they are. So there's one of a, um, a previously unseen uh, blind eel collected from a depth of around five kilometres. There's batfish, there's a tribute spiderfish, uh, a pelican eel, high fin lizardfish, uh, Sloan's viperfish, uh, slender snipe eel. So, you know, some of the they'll, – they'll be familiar images, but these some of these animals have never been seen before. Yeah, they're remarkable looking. I think the fish are the drama queens of the deep sea, really. You know, they're all shapes and sizes. Some The, the fins are kind of modified into stands for tripod fish, and, and a lot of them have got these little weird lures that come out of their head, um, sometimes with lights on them that attract oh, the prey fish. and stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's just extraordinary, yeah. And really. the last thing I wanted to mention too, because um, we'll have to move on, is um, I read uh, that, that you've collected some pumice stones that are likely to be from the 1883 eruption of Krakatoa in in Indonesia. Yeah, that's right. It's, it was such a massive uh, eruption that really it splattered the whole area in pumice. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Excellent. And so, you, yeah. Um, what's next for you, Tim, and your crew? <laughs> um, well, me personally, I'm off to South America tomorrow. But um, in terms of, uh, there were so many voyages were postponed during COVID times that, in fact, their um, schedule is full for the next two years. So there's another voyage going out um, in a couple of weeks um, to the Shark Bay Ningaloo area. So they're going to do um, more surveying around there. But you know, it's really just all those back-to-back piled up voyages that have been postponed so they'll be first and so hopefully i'll be back in the water in 2025 oh brilliant um so if you want to find out more about this go to museumsvictoria.com.au and read all of that just follow those links i mentioned before um tim thanks so much for joining us again it's always a pleasure to catch up with you and uh, hope to do so uh in 2023 thank you and good luck with your trip tomorrow Thanks. Okay. Bye for now. Dr. Tim O'Hara, they're from Museums Victoria. Incredible stuff. And, and beautiful descriptions of what they saw but beneath the surface with that, with, the, with that imagery. But also you can imagine being on the deck of the boat, looking out, you just see the flat surface of the sea sunsets and then you're finding out there's all, all this, this extra stuff. world below. Yeah, no, amazing. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. 
Now, if you've ever visited the Killer Whale Museum in Eden on the Sapphire Coast of New South Wales, you might remember this story of Old Tom, the leader of a killer whale pod that worked in partnership with local whalers in the 1920s and 30s. Nearly 100 years later, research is now underway to investigate the genetic link between Old Tom and orcas of today from all over Australia and even beyond. Is it possible that the orcas we're seeing right now are descendants of Old Tom? To find out, we're crossing now to Adelaide to speak with Flinders University PhD researcher Isabella Reeves. Good morning, Isabella. Good morning. Great to have you with us. We're hoping to have Dave Donnelly with us as well, but we haven't been uh, able to contact him, so we're just going to proceed with you. I hope that's okay. Okay, great. Um, so uh, let, let, let's maybe start with uh, if you can tell us a little bit about yourself. Your LinkedIn profile, I, I did a bit of Google stalking yesterday, um, describes you as PhD candidate in evolutionary ecology and conservation genomics. What does that mean? Uh, well, basically I am using genomics as a tool to look into the evolution of killer whales with a focus on those in Australia and New Zealand. Um, more specifically, my project really is trying to look at uh, how uh, killer whales are adapting to climate change um, from the past, present and future. And part of this is actually learning the history of Australian killer whales. And of course, this is where old Tim, Tom kind of um, fits into the picture and the killers of Eden, um, especially being such a prominent story on the east coast of Australia. Uh, fantastic story. There's so many questions I want to ask you, Isabella. Um, how are you so going back to the past? So we know there are stories of old Tom 70 years ago. I'm just learning about him this morning. But do we still have old Tom? Can you get like samples from like DNA samples? Yeah, so old Tom washed up in 1930 um, near Eden and they've actually got pictures um, from it um, that they've been able to record. So the after that point they made a... Um, the Eden Kilowell Museum, basically. Um, it's changed a bit over the decades. It used to be like a shed. Um, now it's more of a museum. And there's a, almost a complete skeleton. Like there's a few things missing, like teeth and a bone here or there, but it's really, really amazing to go see. Um, and it's he's a very big killer whale. But, yeah, essentially because most of him's there, I was actually able to drill using a dermal drill, which is something you actually use for engraving. So it's really, really fine. And I was actually able to drill into the tooth of old Tom. And then we also wanted to go in the jaw. So I had to put my head, my head up inside his head, head-butted him a few times, but um, managed to get some samples from inside his jaw as well. But it was a big process. It's not like, a, as you can imagine, with a drill like that. It took about seven hours to get one gram of old Tom. So... <laughs> <laughs> but, but it was ultimately successful, right? Yeah, the sample extraction was successful and now we're just waiting to see if we've actually got DNA. So he's currently getting sequenced in Oxford um, and we're hoping to have some information, well, I'm hoping to have a good glance to see if there's any DNA that we can use um, to be able to answer these questions, like where has he come from? It's with great pleasure that we can also welcome Dave Donnelly into this conversation. Dave's just joined us via Skype. Hey, Dave. Good morning and apologies for my late arrival or some technical issues at my end. Nice to be at my end rather than the, uh, the studio, eh? Yeah, yeah, all good. Um, so we've just been speaking about uh, the process that Isabella used in order to extract a little bit of um, mat genetic material from old Tom so that she can start doing this sequencing work as well. The really the other interesting part to old Tom is at the time that he uh, was found washed on, up on the beach, he was estimated to be about 30 years old, but, but it turns out to be not the case he's actually he was a lot older at the time that he died yeah this is a I think a bit of a 
something that needs a bit more investigation because what's really unusual is that they've there's been multiple accounts of perhaps that he was actually older because old Tom, there's been records since the start of the um, interaction with the humans in Eden. So that really started in 1940 and kind of finished in 1930, so almost 90 years, and that is what we would think is too old for a male nowadays. Um, but there has been some investigation into this sort of stuff. It could be that there's been multiple males that have type kind of taken his role on. It's kind of, I guess, hard to believe that because he's got such a distinct dorsal fin that um, that sort of thing would happen, but perhaps behaviours were learnt. Um, it's kind of, yeah, I guess something that gets lost in translation in um, these sorts of stories. Isabella, um, how are you going to link that? So when you, you, old Tom's being sequenced at the moment in Oxford, you said you went down, you got out of his tooth, you've got a couple of grams or a gram of DNA. Um, once you have that sequence in hand, what are you going to do with it? How are you going to try and relate old Tom's perhaps continuing presence through genetic um, descendants yeah, so what, at the moment in the in the water? <laughs> so what's really cool is, like, one animal can basically give you, like, over 10,000 generations worth of information, which is amazing. And we've been able to sequence not only killer whales from all over Australia, including the East Coast, um, but we've also got samples from all over the world. So basically I'm going to be comparing... Um, old Tom to those samples from not only Australia but all over the world and we should still we should start being able to see kind of where he fits into the overall um, story of killer whales as we know killer whales are found almost everywhere in the world Um, they conquer the oceans very similar to human uh, expansion so he they really could be from anywhere Um, and we know we've got a lot of visiting animals uh, on the east coast even nowadays that are coming up from the Antarctic for instance so yeah, he's. I'm really excited to see what we get from him. Yeah. Um, Dave, question for you, and because there's a partnership happening here, isn't there, in terms of your knowledge of orcas, your, your kind of current working knowledge from of the, the work that you do with Killer Whales Australia? Yeah, absolutely, Bron. And um, this is, as, as Bella's already said, this is an incredibly exciting project, probably the most exciting project I've ever had the uh, good fortune to be have a small part in. Um, since first visiting Eden in uh, 1983 uh, and seeing Tom then, uh, and then as I've grown and learnt more about what can be done with science, um, it has been a bit of a dream, and, and Isabella knows this as well, that to, to be able to apply um, such a rare specimen as Tom to a current day population or populations of killer whales around Australia. And, and I guess my, um, my, my question to Bella is, when are you going to tell me the answer? <laughs> as soon as possible you'll get a call um, it, it, we understand it's very difficult work and, and time consuming and, and quite technical and we know that the the answer may not come um it, it just depends on the dna quality but um what would your suggestions be in terms of moving forward with understanding the i guess the national or australasian populations we, we know a lot about um uh, New Zealand and, and west coast is, uh, of Australia, but we know very little about the east coast. Um, what would you suggest we do in the east coast if we have an opportunity? I think, as you know, Dave, with the east coast, east coast killer whales are very elusive, even more elusive than what we've already got on the west coast, which they're not always there all the time either. Um, 
But I think what we can do and what we're starting to be able to do really is um, look at the ancestry of even the animals that we have. Like for the Queensland ones, for instance, we know that now from what you're seeing that they seem to actually revisit the same location. So I can actually look at the ancestry of these samples and kind of pinpoint where they've come from. Um, it might give us more of an idea of where they actually are from as well. We'll have um, to we'll have to pause the conversation now. We're actually wrapping up the program, about to head into the next one. So let's treat this as a part one, and then uh, next year let's let's get everyone back on the call. Maybe we might get you in studio, Dave, and um, and we can talk more about this in terms of where you're heading with this research, Isabella, because we're just sort of at the early stages, aren't we? Yes. Yeah, fantastic. The documentary filming this. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us. It's been great to to start this conversation. We'll definitely continue. For sure. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Isabella. Bye-bye. Okay, bye for now. Bye. Uh, thank you to Dave uh, Donnelly, Isabella Reeves, also to Tim O'Hara and to Neil Blake, who was in earlier. Thank you, Dr Beach. Uh, it's a pleasure. Been a big packed show as always, and thank you, Rachel, very much for uh, panelling for us today. It's been a busy show, and thanks to David, who will have this show up as a podcast in the next few days. On our program next week, uh, Dr Beach, you're coming back in? I sure am. Excellent. We'll have Kate on Skype as well, catching up with Ben, Francis Shelley, Lisa Warp, artist as part of Front Beach, Back Beach and Jeff Maynard as well. Another packed show. Have a great Sunday. Stay tuned for Radiotherapy. Bye for now. Triple R. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.